So those two chapters, Ephesians 2, 2 and Revelation 21. Ephesians 2, Revelation 21. By now, most of you, if not all of you, have, have seen the, the little logo or words N-O-W uh, with the cross in the middle. Um, it's a rather ingenious way of, of getting at the idea of not of this world. It's like bumper stickers, t-shirts. It's rather uh, catchy phrase, not to mention um, rather profitable um, way of kind of getting the word out there, not of this world. I've seen it on the backs of cars and, and so have you. Um, that phrase comes from two places in the Gospel of John, chapter 8 and chapter 18, in reference to both Jesus and his kingdom. That Jesus said, I am not of this world. And he also explained that his kingdom is not of this world. Now, I'm not going to push a Christian logo or, or slogan, but I do want to use it. Uh, because it is in the Bible, and uh, I want to expound on it and uh, associate it or connect it to our theme, which has been Be the Book. Uh, because if we are followers of Jesus, who is not of this world, and if we are a part of his kingdom, which is not of this world, then part of being the book is, is being not of this world. There should be something about the flavor of our lives that seems foreign to the world around us. That's what not of this world means. It means we're in some sense to be looked upon as foreigners. There's supposed to be something foreign about us. Now, um, not of this world implies, of course, that we belong to someone else or we belong to another place. We belong to what I'm going to argue is another time. Um, That's what it means to to be not of or not belong to um, this world. That means that Christian identity, um, who we are, um, how we assign and understand our own value, um, should not be, which unfortunately we often do, should not be tied to um, a flag or to a political party, Democrat or Republican, not even to our our, um, citizenship as U.S. citizens, nor our ethnic background. Ultimately, our identity is tied into the fact of the fact that we belong to Jesus um, and that we are a people of another place and, as I said, another time. I'm going to bring that last part out in a moment. Now, up to this point in this little mini-series called Be the Book, um, we have emphasized uh, being the book as an individual responsibility um, taken out of um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that we are scattered throughout our, um, our, our city and some in neighboring cities. And one of the places that, or the place that God wants to, you to shine and communicate his truth is wherever he's sovereignly in his providence placed you. And there's so much outreach mission opportunity if we just simply see our responsibility as personal individuals to be the living letter of Christ in both how we live and also what we say. But we've pressed it individually, and I think rightly so. This morning, I want to switch the emphasis, and I want to emphasize the fact that we as a community of believers are a book. That is, in our relationships, our connectedness together, the people should read um, our collective faith and know something about Christ, that we are a book together. And that is the part that I want to press this morning and do it with two truths. 
first one is probably obvious to you, and the second one is probably maybe a little bit different way of looking at things than you've seen before. Um, the first truth has to do with simply um, supporting the idea that we as a collective community of believers are in fact to be looked upon as one volume, a book meant to communicate the power of the gospel in our, our daily lives. Now this uh, passage right here behind me that we kind of launched this whole series on, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, um, actually addresses a community, not the individual primarily, uh, where it says, and you, and that's in the original plural, you as a body, you as a people, you as the church, show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. The idea is that the, 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 the church that was fellowshipping and serving and loving one another and worshiping Christ together in Corinth, they, as a collective body, were a book, a letter to be read by those on the outside. Um, it's reminiscent of something Jesus says in, in John chapter 13, which many of you know very well, where he says, by this, men shall know that you're my disciples by the way you love each other, as I have loved you. And that, that statement right there is actually quite profound if you stop and take it apart, because it says that by this they shall know something, and the, the people will see, read, come to understand something by the way in which Christian people serve and love and fellowship and worship together. There's something that's shown or displayed by the way that we treat each other. Um, same idea communicating by the way in which we relate to each other. Or let me put it this way. Each of us is a page in a one-volume work. And that whole book is meant to display the power of the gospel and the way we live and also what we say. And where there are fractures and divisions or God's people can't get along or they can't forgive one another, then that book becomes damaged. Pages are torn out or or. or tattered. Now, I hope that that truth is uh, somewhat obvious to you. I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus and his apostle Paul were so passionate. Actually, all the apostles were passionate about the whole idea of unity because it's meant to convey something. And where there is uh, disunity, uh, the book is damaged and the proclamation of the gospel is, is hindered because we're supposed to live out what we say. Um, in the same way that if I came up to you and, and offered you miracle hair grow, uh, you probably would not buy from me because... <laughs> but we proclaim a gospel. We proclaim a gospel of power that unites and heals and offers forgiveness and grace. So why would someone buy something that we don't live out as a collective community? Now, a lot more could be said about that. Um, I just want to simply establish the first point that we as a, as a body, as a, as a collective um, of individuals who believe in Jesus, were intended to be one single book to be read. And how we relate to each other does really matter. And sometimes, I'm not saying that it's easy or that we do it well all the time. But that's how important it is. That's how important it is because Christ is honored and glorified by the way in which we relate. And his message goes out as we relate to one another as Christ has related to us. And sometimes that is a knockdown, drag out fight. When feelings are hurt, when 
somebody's done something wrong and ask forgiveness and you walk into the church and you see somebody that makes your heart sink, sink or angry, that's difficult. It's easier to leave at that point than stick with it. Sometimes it's just a knockdown, drag out fight. But the glory of Jesus is worth it because that's what's displayed when we work through all that stuff together. So that's truth number one. I, I hope that that's self-evident. We as a collective body were intended to communicate by this men shall know. Now here's the second truth. What is it in particular that people are supposed to see and know, taste in our collective relationships with each other? What are they supposed to take away from Christians as, as they gather, either in small groups or families or in a larger a place like this? Now, I can answer this in a number of ways, but I'm going to answer it this way. Is one of the things that people should read in our relationships, using the book metaphor, or taste, um, or experience, when they come into a gathering of believers, is the future. By future, I mean resurrection life. I mean new creation. That when an unbeliever, someone on the outside, comes in and witnesses firsthand Christian relationship, they should taste something different, something new, something of the resurrection life. should be communicated. I remember the first time that I came across this in some reading, um, one of my, my favorite authors, actually he's not my favorite, but he's, he's pretty much up there, is a, a scholar by the name of uh, Gordon Fee. He's written a number of commentaries and, and more practical pastoral books and so forth. And I was reading this book called um, Listening to the Spirit in the Text. And I came across these statements. And I had to stop and pause because it really challenged me to alter my thinking. And then from him, then to go to the rest of the Bible and see, wow, this actually does play out. This perspective is true. And I know right now you're reading and not listening. So let me read it. (laughs) He writes, I would put at a top level of priority our need. He's talking to the church and about the church. I would put at a top level of priority our need to model, that is demonstrate, display the church as an, and here's a, word most aren't familiar with, but it just means the future, resurrection, um, when everything's completed and so forth, Jesus comes back, basically. The church as an eschatological or future community of the Spirit. Now, what stunned me about it is he said top-level priority. In other words, it's, it's, it's an urgent need. He put it at the top of the list as to what the church needs to get to model the future. He says it in a little bit more uh, layman language here in, in the, on page 177 of the book where he says, we are to be people of the future in the present. People of the future in the present. In other words, in terms of being the book, people are supposed to sense, taste, and smell the future when they see us relating to each other and they see us living out our lives. And you might say, well, where's that found in the Bible? And I, I, after you read this, you then study the Bible, and you realize, wow, it's everywhere. It's like someone saying, have you seen how many VW bugs are on the road? It's like, I never really noticed, but now that you said it, I notice. Um, now, I could take you to a whole number of passages to show you this, but let me just take you to these two, Ephesians and Revelation 21 to show you that in fact we are supposed to be uh, the future people in the present. 
And then how, what difference does it make? Fast forward, Revelation chapter 21. Um, this is a vision of the perfected, resurrected body of Christ. Um, this is what we will be in the future. And it's a rather st- stunning, though symbolic, um, description. The Apostle John writes, and again, this is at the very end of the Bible. This is how everything concludes. This is our future. Then came one of the seven angels who had, had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, here's the invitation, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So the invitation is to come see um, the beautiful bride of, of Jesus. Now verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, uh, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel like a jasper, clear as crystal. And it goes on to describe the dimensions of the city as a perfect cube, which I didn't put in here because of space. Now what's interesting about this is that the vision of, and again, symbolic language, um, the vision is one of a city slash temple slash bride. Now I've expounded on this uh, passage uh, about a year and three or four months ago, so I won't go into any depth, but just to say that What he is being invited to witness and see is nothing less than the glory of the church. Um, When it says there, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb in the New Testament, there's only one thing that the bride of the lamb is, and it's not a physical city. It's you, and it's me. It's every believer who has ever lived and will live. All unified together, which is part of the building idea, and magnificently adorned with the best jewels and gems that the, the earth has to offer. And that's a rather um, compelling vision of, of the church. It's a, a bride city temple. And I say temple because that cube, the only other place you find a cube in the entire Bible is the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. So he's combining these images of, of temple and city, and then he is calling it the bride, resurrected and glorious. Um, Verse 22 makes it even more clear that it's talking about um, that the city is a temple-type city when it says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, because they indwell it. So let me just uh, stop here and just say, this is the vision of the future for us, is um, radiant glory reflected off of us, which is the radiance of God. All together, one city people, a bride, loved, beloved, and so forth. That's, that's, that's what this vision tells us about our future. And at this point, you're like, wow, that'll be exciting when we get there. Now I want you to transition back to Ephesians because Paul uses the same kind of terminology, only he speaks in the present. Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 19, where he says, you, he's speaking to Gentiles, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built, now he's going to use building verbs, connection, Um, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, there's a collective idea again, we are all Believers past, present, and future being built together um, 
being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being, uh, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So John and Paul are talking about basically the same thing, only John is talking about it in the future and Paul's talking about it in the present. Being joined together, present tense. Grows, present tense. In him you also are being built together, present tense. Temple idea, building idea, the indwelling of God's presence by his spirit idea. Same stuff. John and Paul are just using the same vocabulary, same images, as if they they talked to one another and they had a uh, uh, a common understanding of where we're headed and who we already are. The point to be drawn from this, the connection between Revelation 21 and Ephesians chapter 2, is that we already are what we will be. We already are the temple, God's people. We already do have the presence of God indwelling us by his Holy Spirit. We already are what we will be. And we wait the completion of it in the resurrection physically from the dead. But the idea is that the future has already begun. And that's how we're supposed to see ourselves in one another. That in one sense, the resurrection has already happened. That God has said, let there be light. And hearts have come to life. And now praising and trusting and hoping in Christ. That is a resurrection. That when Jesus rose from the dead, that day that 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 stone was moved, the new creation started. And we've been living in it ever since and waiting its completion. The idea, again, is that the future has already begun. That we are to see ourselves as resurrection people. That's why we can call ourselves saints. Um, That's why Paul could say, if any man is in Christ, he already is a new creature. You don't wait for the future. It's already present. The future has, 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 if you will, flown uh, into our present. So we are to be people who reflect and look at each other and look at our own lives as from that future perspective. Um, That seems to be Paul's perspective. If you ever stopped and pondered why he speaks of future things in the past tense, like chapter chapter two of uh, Ephesians again, when he says that we um, that he made us alive together with Christ, that's past tense. Made as if it already happened, or that he has raised us up with Christ, past tense, and has seated us, past tense, with him in the heavenly places. He speaks of it as if it's already done. Now, some would say, well, that's just positional language. I would be willing to argue that in addition to that, it's also chronological language. As if, Paul, follow me here with your mind, because on the other side of this, I think there's tremendous fruit. And if you don't get this right in your mind, then the heart can't follow. But it's as if he teleports himself into the future and looks at everything through that lens. I am already alive with Christ. I have already been raised with Christ, and I'm already seated at the right hand of Christ. And he views life through that future lens. And I think in large part because the future has already begun, and he sees it as a whole. To see ourselves as the resurrection people. 
It's a big deal. And again, you could just go on and on. Almost every doctrine in the New Testament uh, has this idea in it that the future has already come and now we're awaiting its completion. So, back to the big deal. So what? For me, as I've thought about this and as I've I just analyzed my own life, my own heart, and my own relationships with y'all, I realized that it is tremendously freeing. And to get that kind of freedom idea, let me, let me paint a contrast. The way the world operates in its relationships, though we wouldn't really articulate it this way because we'd be embarrassed by the selfishness in it, and I'm talking about the unbelieving world, the way the world relates to one another oftentimes um, develops along the lines of beauty, social standing or position, wealth, where you live geographically, what your career is. And people tend to relate on the basis of those kinds of things. And the question that I find myself asking by looking at my life and your life through the resurrection lens that we are resurrected people, the future has already come, the question is, what's going to matter at the resurrection if I'm to see myself there? Or let me be a little more concrete. A person who's a, a vascular surgeon is given tacit respect and honor. Tacit meaning unspoken. Because if someone says they're a vascular surgeon, that means they're educated, smart, and probably have a lot of money. And people gravitate relationally to people like that. As opposed to, say, somebody who's a career waitress at Denny's, who may work just as hard, if not harder, than the vascular surgeon, but because her job isn't looked upon socially as at the top of the ladder, there isn't as much tacit respect given. All right? You follow? And I'm sorry if you work at Denny's. That wasn't a slam. Because what I'm going to say next should liberate it. My sister worked at Denny's and uh, helped put her through school. That's why I picked Denny's. My sister. I don't know if anybody... Denny's, so if, if you do, I'm sorry. Ask yourself the question. Vascular surgeon, waitress at Denny's. At the resurrection, what's that going to matter? So if it's not... Now, that's not to say, let me back up, that's not to say that if a person does it as unto the Lord in the way and why they do it, that it is not somehow contribute to the future. However, those old lines of distinction and respect and honor, will they matter at the resurrection? The answer is no. So if it doesn't matter at the resurrection, so why should it matter, then why should it matter in the church? If we're the resurrected people and see ourselves already there. Uh... People give tacit respect, unspoken respect or honor to people who live in different locations. I could name a bunch of regions in our own town, and you'd know instantly that's a person of means, and this person is, is not so much a person of means. And people tend to gravitate towards power and money and away from lower income, unless you happen to be a lower income person. Now, 
question we ask ourselves at the resurrection, is it going to matter where we lived? Not an ounce, not a sliver. It won't matter where you lived or where you live. So if it's not going to matter then, then why should it matter now? If we're the resurrected people, and to see ourselves through the lens of the future, those old categories don't don't jive anymore. And I think that's one of the ways that unbelievers coming into a body of believers can taste the future. To see Miss Beautiful and Miss Not-So-Beautiful, Mr. Wealthy and Mr. Poor, or to use the language of Galatians, the Jew and the Gentile, the, the master and the slave, the woman and the man, all worshiping and fellowshipping and serving one another without this, these social categories. When you come into a, an experience like that, when people come from outside into that kind of a relational environment, they're tasting heaven. They're tasting the future. They're tasting the new creation, which is why the Bible is so, the New Testament in particular, is so intense about destroying those kinds of social structures. They're not going to be found in the future. So they shouldn't be found in the church in the present. And when you, they, they experience something like that, genuine relationships built not on social categories, but on the death and the resurrection and our future resurrection, well, then they taste something different. That's, that's what this perspective does. Is we are the resurrected people of God, looking forward, yes, in hope, but to see ourselves as already there. Or here's, here's a personal one. This is what, what, things that I think about. Uh, Deanna and I, my wife, uh, were invited to the Black Hills, uh, South Dakota. I, when I heard South Dakota, I thought, why are we having a family reunion. It's a family reunion in South Dakota. I thought, why in South Dakota until I actually went there? And Black Hills is pretty amazing. You know, lots of Harley Davidson riders in Black Hills in South Dakota. Anyway, we, we, went, to, uh, we went to this family reunion, 2008, and um, there were about 50, 55 people there. And I found out that one of my wife's, like, second cousin's husband, second cousin's husband, who was going to be there, is the CEO of Microsoft. Steve Ballmer is his name. Doesn't have hair. I love him. <laughs> I found myself thinking, okay, like we're going we're gonna to fly into the Black Hills and I'm going to see family I've never seen before. This is her um, natural parents. My wife is adopted, so she just found them, so hence we found this whole side of the family. And I thought to myself, well, what am I near the bottom of the food chain going to say to one of the 50 richest men in the world. How do we relate? You know? And I'll, I'll, I'm perfectly honest, it's kind of intimidating to think, what am I going to say? I bought an Apple computer. <laughs> That's what I wanted. I, I got an iPhone and an iPad. Because you screwed up Microsoft Windows. Anyway, I just... <laughs> That's what I wish I would have said. I just... No, I was intimidated. I just thought, I, I'm going to... How do I relate to this guy? Well, you know, that kind of thinking, old world thinking, that's placing my sense of identity, worth, and value in how the world judges things outside the resurrection. However, remembering that 
Resurrection Day, Microsoft is going to be a buried footnote in the annals of history. And so will the top 50 richest men. The only thing that's going to matter is that I'm a child of God resurrected, and so are you. And you know what kind of freedom comes with that? You realize I don't live by those social categories anymore. That's living as resurrected people. And that we're supposed to see one another that way too. Let's, let's put it in the negative. What about even the flaws and the imperfections that we all have? They irritate, you know? There are people here that irritate me, and I know I irritate you. Ask yourself the question. At the resurrection, is it really going to matter? I'm not saying we don't... <laughs> I like you, Dan. So if it's, it's not going to matter then, then then maybe it shouldn't matter so much now. Now, I'm not, not saying we don't take personal responsibility for our flaws. What I'm saying is that through the lens of the resurrection, that we already have been raised up with Christ, we can let go of those things much easier if we maintain this lens. We are the future people. We are the resurrected people of God. Um, so when outsiders kind of get close what they should sense and feel and smell in our relationships is that we are the resurrected people of God. And the reason that we do what we do is altogether different than what the reason that they do what they do. To, to just to, to be able to look and see the different kinds of people serving one another, worshiping with each other, fellowshipping with with one another in a way that ignores those old world categories and sees one another and the whole in view of the resurrection. So that, you know, the, the people can, can taste in your life, wow, there's something that makes this person tick. Like his, his faith is in something that he doesn't believe in, or doesn't believe in. His faith is in something that he can't see, something he can't touch. It's, his faith is not in the federal government. It's not in his his political party. It's, it's not in the U.S. of A. It's not even in itself. It's, it's a faith that's not of this world. Or, or hope, you know, watching somebody go through chemotherapy or, or losing a child, and there still is this hope which can't be explained because it's not of this world. It's, it's, it originates somewhere else and is placed somewhere else so that people can rejoice even when their body is just being poisoned? That's, that's, that's living in the light of the resurrection. For people to, to experience in a Christian family or small group, church, that, that they love one another regardless of color, shape, or size with a love that doesn't originate with us or them, but with a love that originates not of this world. What I'm, I'm saying, my friends, brothers and sisters, as a family, this is largely perspective, is that we have to wear a lens over our face when we look at reality, look at ourselves, look at one another. And that lens is that we are the resurrected people of God. We are to give out a flavor of the future. We're to live in that light. And it's freeing. It allows us to, to let go of hurts, and enables us to love one another without that worldly sense of, of uh, establishing or gaining worth by money or position or education or whatever the case may be. So my, my, my single hope, really, for this message 
is that one, we recognize that we're supposed to be the book collectively. We're to express who Christ is. In particular, future, resurrection, new life. And if we can maintain that perspective, the lens of we are the resurrected people of God, then I believe we'll be much better at loving one another in ways that are not of this world. Lord, we ask that you would take your truth, though it may be difficult intellectually to grasp how the future can be in the present. I believe wholeheartedly that your Bible teaches that it is. The resurrection was the beginning, and we live in newness of life. We live in hope. We live with the truth that we are already righteous even before the final judgment. So help us by faith to embrace this truth, to see life through this truth, see ourselves through this truth, and also to relate and see one another through this truth. Ultimately, that Jesus might be magnified in the way that the pages of our lives relate to one another in this single book we call the church. And pray that in his name. Amen.